0: You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us.
1: Hi, I'm Annie in Boston. And I'm Johanna in Austria, and you're listening to your favorite international podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Murder, Mystery, and the Macabre, hosted by two online friends who haven't met in real life so far. Before we start, just one more thing. Most of you already know it and you're <laughs> tired and sick of hearing of it. We can hear your eyes roll. <laughs> Please don't forget to vote for us in the first round of the People's Choice Podcast Awards. You have until 31st of July. Go to Podcast Awards dot com, register and verify your email, tick the little box that asks you if you want to be considered for final voting, and vote for us in four categories, People's Choice, True Crime, History, and Female Hosted. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, let's get right into part two of our quote-unquote anniversary special. I don't know. I don't think we can call it anniversary. No, it's our 200th episode special. Today, we're back for part two of our three-part coverage of the real story of the Amityville haunting. Last week, we covered the terrible murder of the DeFeo family by the oldest son in the family, Ron DeFeo Jr., which, in our opinion, is the true horror in this story. Absolutely. So today's
0: sources are a little bit unusual for us. If you know, if you're a regular listener, today's sources might be a surprise. The primary source, and the one we'll be quoting from, is the 1977 book by Jay Anson, the Amityville Horror, described by the New York Times as scarier than The Exorcist because it was a true story.
1: Yeah, the book and the film The Exorcist had both been out well before the Defeu murders happened. And, you know, just tuck that in in the back of your brain for next week. Just keep it in there, you know. That's right. Remember it. Yeah.
0: And then another source for today is Daniel's documentary interview, which is called My Amityville Horror, as well as some interviews with the Lutzes. There are so many interviews. Today, we're going to present The Haunting to you as it was presented to us, the 11-year-old reading public, as a true story (laughs) back in the day. Next week, if there's things we left out or things we didn't get into, that's part three next week when we're going to get into the investigations all kinds of stuff. So today, The Haunting.
1: The films are a whole other thing, though. And everybody understands that the film and the subsequent films, there are so many now, took a lot of dramatic license with things. A lot. That's that's a whole different thing.
0: Yes. We are not going to be referencing the films at all. This is just the book. So this episode is the story of The Haunting according to the Lutz family. And Just a quick warning, we will be talking a little bit about child abuse. So let's start with a little bit of background. Kathleen Teresa Connors was born in New York in 1946. Her first husband was her high school sweetheart. They had grown up near each other, and according to their oldest son, Danny, Daniel, when the senior prom led to an unexpected pregnancy, him, they got married. He was born in early 1968, so that tracks. I think in my Amityville horror, that documentary that, uh, Daniel, now an adult and still very, very scarred by this experience has done, there's a really cute photo from their wedding where she looks, she looks like she's expecting. They went on to have another son, Christopher, and then a daughter, Missy, before divorcing. Kathy went on a couple of dates, but pretty soon met George Lutz. George was a former Marine, and he had also been married previously and had gotten an annulment from his first wife, who was Catholic. Daniel, who would have been around seven at the time, remembers that George had a really nice house and speedboats and fancy cars and motorcycles. He had a carry permit, and he owned his own family business. He just seemed like such a catch and must have seemed like the answer to Kathy's prayers, and he wanted to be a dad to her children. George and Kathy were married on July 4th, 1975, and one thing to mention is that Daniel says that the only way George would marry his mother is if he could legally adopt the children, that it was very important to him that the children were his. The documentary shows photos of adoption records. Uh, I think they still saw their biological father on Sundays. I don't think he was out of the picture, but the whole situation is a little bit unusual. And to be frank, none of our business, really. The family had been living in George's house, but they needed more space to spread out now that they were a family of five, and they had been searching for a while for a home when they went to look at the house on Ocean Avenue. Now, I think I read somewhere that apparently the house should have been listed around $150,000, but because of the terrible murders the year before, the price was significantly reduced and was in the $80,000 range. Here is the listing, which was only at the Realtors. I don't think it was ever, like, listed in the newspapers. And it read, quote, Exclusive Amityville area, six-bedroom Dutch colonial, spacious living room, formal dining room, a closed porch, Three and a half baths, finished basement, two car garage, heated swimming pool, and large boathouse, asking $80,000. Now, they'd been previously searching in the $30,000 to $50,000 range, but they had found nothing. So they decided to just go and take a look at this house. I think the realtor was like, let's go look at how the other half lives. And they couldn't believe that this incredible property would maybe be in their budget with a little bit of finagling. It was definitely more than they had planned to spend, but George had inherited a family land surveying business, and rather than continue to pay the rent on the office space, he could move the office into the home's finished basement. He was also paying to have his two boats, a 25-foot cabin cruiser and a 15-foot speedboat. I think they were in slips at the local marina, and those fees are not inexpensive. So by having their own boathouse big enough for both of his boats, they'd save money there too. They'd figure out how to make it work. And as they walked around, George could tell how much Kathy just absolutely loves this house. The realtor then tells them about the murders that took place there the previous year. And she says... She asks them, you know, hey, do you think I should tell my clients about the murders before or after the house tour? Because she doesn't actually think her clients are going to buy this house. She just knows they've been looking forever. We actually did that a few times. And George and Kathy are not really that fazed by it. They talk to the kids, although very briefly. I think I think Danny talks about in his documentary how like they're running around playing and his parents are like, are you guys okay with the fact that people were killed here last year? And they're like, eh? You know, like a, like a seven-year-old or a nine-year-old, you know what I mean? And so, yeah, as a family, they decide that as tragic as what had happened was, they were going to buy the house. So now the question that has to be asked, Johanna, would you buy it? Because I think I would, actually. I'd probably do a cleansing, and I'd probably make like a little memorial area, maybe keep like a little statue of St. Joseph or something, just to sort of remember the family. But I think I would be able
1: to come to terms with it. Uh, I think I could buy it now, so many years, decades later. Yeah. I don't think I would have been able just a year after it had happened. I think that's that's too close. Too soon. For comfort. Yeah. Too soon, too, yeah, too recent. Mm. I love the house, it's a beautiful house. I want to own it, but
0: I want to own it and one year put the windows back the way they were. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Lutz family decide they're gonna buy the house. It's big enough for everyone. The bedroom on the third floor, the one with the really cool windows, which had been Ronnie DeFeo Junior's bedroom, that would be for seven year old Christopher and nine year old Daniel to share. And then the other bedroom on the third floor, that's where Don DeFeo had been murdered. They decided that would make a perfect playroom, which it absolutely would, right? Third floor to have your kids, like, get them up up top or down in the basement. There was also a full bathroom on the third floor as well as some storage. Five-year-old Missy would sleep on the second floor across the hall from the main bedroom. She was going to be sleeping in the room where Allison had been murdered. And they would also be a sewing room, which was where Mark and John had been murdered, their bedroom. And then a large dressing room for George and Kathy. I think when the DeFeos lived there, it was like a little sitting room on that floor, but it wasn't anybody's bedroom. Nothing important happens in the sitting room, which is actually something to note. George and Kathy, they had their own bathroom that was attached to the main bedroom. And then there was a second full family bathroom on that floor as well. So the kids were all really happy with their sleeping situations. Probably less ha- happy was Harry, George's guard dog, a lab Malamute mix, like a big, big dog. He was kept outside, chained up in a pen behind the house. I really hope you had a dog house. George is not a great dog owner. More on that later. The dog doesn't die. Don't worry. Just to put everyone's, <laughs> just relaxed. That's the dog's fine. But I don't love, I don't love the way they treat the dog. So as for the furnishings, Jay Anson writes, quote, Downstairs, on the main floor, the Lutzes had a slight problem. They didn't own any dining room furniture. They finally decided that before closing, George would tell the broker that they'd like to purchase the dining room set left in storage by the DeFeos, along with a girls' bedroom set for Missy, a TV chair, and Ronald DeFeo's bedroom furniture. These things and other furnishings left in the house, like the DeFeo's bed, were not included in the purchase price. George paid an additional $400 for these items. He also got for free seven air conditioners, two washers, two dryers, and a new refrigerator and freezer. End quote. So we did that with our house. There were a few pieces of furniture that we bought from the people who owned our home before us because they fit beautifully, and they, you know, they asked if there was anything we'd be interested in. I don't think I would purchase the bed another little girl had just been murdered in for my five-year-old. I feel like. She could sleep on a mattress and box spring without a headboard and footboard. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't want to sleep mm. in the same bed that people were murdered in, died in. Sure. I love antiques. Death is a part of life. But like, if I knew a murder happened in the bed, I'd like a year ago, if that's, I just think it's a no for me.
1: Yeah. That's a no for me yeah. as well. When we bought our house, we bought it with all the furniture in it because it was kind of an incentive if they wouldn't have to clean everything out. It's a little bit different here mm-hmm. than in the States. The first thing we did was bring in our own bed. Yeah. I wouldn't have slept in a, in a stranger's bed. No, it's weird. And honestly, the house felt really weird in the beginning. Like we were just guests and only once we threw out most of the furniture, it started to feel more like ours. Yeah. And our house is not a house. Where somebody had been shot. So exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly, right. So they moved in on 18th of December, which is kind of a codic day of closing on one house and then moving to another on the same day with the help of a massive rented U-Haul and some of George's friends still in their twenties, which is good because all our friends are in their thirties and forties, and yeah, we're too nobody old to help anymore. Yeah, no, we don't. We're Hire <laughs> movers. We're all nobody's backworks. Also that day, a Catholic priest named Father Mancuso, who lived near George's oldest house, and he had been friendly with the family when he had realized that George, who was a non-practicing Methodist, was raising Catholic children. And they'd asked Father Mancuso to come over and bless the house for them, basically. And Father Mancuso, which, by the way, is not his real name, but we'll stick to the alias for him. So he wakes up that morning with a feeling of dread. He had planned to have lunch with some friends before going to the Lutz home and at lunch he finds he's still in a bit of a strange mood and he keeps putting off his departure and his friends ask where in will he's headed and once they realize where he's going they tell him about the murders and try to convince him not to go. And it's worth mentioning that three of them are also priests and they are all trying to convince him not to go but he's adamant. Even though he's been dreading it all day, he's going to go to do his job. So he arrives at the house and is impressed with how nice and big it is. And he gets his things out of the car. And he puts his stole on to begin the blessings. And he's alone in the room when he flicks the first drop of holy water. And as he begins to speak the prayer, he suddenly hears a deep voice behind him say, Get out! Get out! And he continues on his blessing. And doesn't mention this to the Lutzes because, I mean... doesn't say a word. He's like, it's, <laughs> it's fine. It's
0: perfectly normal.
1: They ask him to stay for dinner, but he can't. He's busy. He's super busy. <laughs> he's, he has I'm to so leave. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> because I'm he sorry. has to go to be at his mother's for supper. So he has a good excuse. <laughs> and when he reaches his mother's house, she opens the door and is immediately worried. And she asks him if he's okay. And he tells him, you look really terrible. I mean, only a mother can do that. Yeah. She's actually right, he really does look terrible. And after 8 that night, he's driving back to the rectory when suddenly he feels like his car is being forced off the road. And Anson writes, quote, He looked around quickly. There was no other vehicle within 50 feet of him. Shortly after driving back onto the highway and continuing on his way, the hood suddenly flew open, smashing back against the windshield. One of the welded hinges tore loose. The right door flew open. Frantically, Father Mancuso tried to break the car, then it stalled by itself. End quote. That's horrible. Nobody wants to experience something like this. Terrifying. So the priest makes his way to a payphone and he calls another priest friend who takes him to a garage where he hires a tow truck and leaves it to the mechanic to figure out what's going on with this clearly possessed car. Uh, and a friend drives him home. Meanwhile,
0: back on Ocean Avenue, George is exhausted and still unpacking when Danny comes running into the house screaming that Harry the dog is in trouble. They rush outside, and Harry had tried to jump the fence of his pen, but the lead that he was tied to was hanging him, and he was strangling. Danny, now a grown-ass man in his 50s still understandably has awful nightmares about this incredibly traumatic event so they saved the dog and then george shortened the dog's leash so it couldn't happen again and he went back to hooking up his stereo
1: i hate everything about that Mm -hmm. father mancusa is home and his phone rings and it's the priest who had just dropped him off And he says he can't believe it. On his way home, his windshield wipers were flying back and forth, and he hadn't even turned them on. Mm.
0: Meanwhile, George wakes to the sound of what he thinks is the front door slamming. And he looks at the clock, and it's 3.15 a.m. He gets up, and he thinks he sees something moving near the boathouse. He's annoyed because Harry isn't barking. So he walks over into the sewing room, and he opens a window and yells at the dog, who then starts barking. So George goes down, and it's below freezing out, and so he grabs a big stick. I think he grabs actually a two-by-four, and he heads to the boathouse, where Harry is now, of course, barking furiously. He sees movement again, and then he realizes it's the shadow of a door swinging in the wind. It's not a person walking around that Harry was ignoring. And he's sure that he had locked that before bed. So he yells at the dog to be quiet and goes back to bed. Quoting Anson, quote, Waiting for sleep to return, he considered what he had gotten himself into. A second marriage with three children, a new house with a big mortgage. The taxes in Amityville were three times higher than in Deer Park. Did he really need that new speedboat? How the hell was he going to pay for all of this? The construction business was lousy on Long Island because of the tight mortgage money, and it didn't look like it would get better until the banks loosened up. If they aren't building houses and buying property, who the hell needs a land surveyor? Kathy shifted in her sleep. Her face burrowed deep into his chest. He sniffed her hair. She certainly smelled clean, he thought. He liked that. And she kept the children the same way. Spotless. Her kids? George's now. Whatever the trouble, she and the children were worth it. George looked up at the ceiling. Danny was a good boy, into everything. He could handle almost anything you gave him to do. They were getting closer now. Danny was beginning to call his stepfather Dad. No more George. In a way, he was glad he never got to meet Kathy's ex-husband. This way, he felt Danny was all his. Kathy said that Chris looked just like his father, had the same ways about him, the same dark, curly hair and eyes. George would reprimand the boy for something, and Chris's face would fall, and he'd look up at him with those soulful eyes. The kids sure knew how to use them. He liked the way both boys looked after little Missy. She was a little terror, but smart for a five year old. He'd never had any trouble with her from the first day he met Kathy. She was daddy's girl, all right. Listens to Kathy and me. In fact, they all do. They're three nice kids I've got. It was after six before George finally fell into a deep sleep. Kathy woke a few minutes later. She looked around the strange room, trying to pull her thoughts together. She was in the bedroom of her beautiful new home. Her husband was next to her, and her three children were in their own bedrooms. Wasn't that marvelous? God had been good to them. End quote. That's a long quote, but I think it's important later. All right. So as Kathy is unpacking that morning, she leaves George to sleep and the kids are out playing with the dog. And then when George wakes up, he's in an absolutely foul mood and he's really short with her, yells at the kids, which Kathy thinks is not like him.
1: George is also unable to get warm. He's obsessed with feeding the fire shocking amounts of wood and never actually feeling warm. He wakes up every single night at 3.15 a.m and he's compelled to go to the boathouse all the time for no apparent reason, he'll go out there in the middle of the night, for example. All of their personalities are changing in very subtle ways. The kids are acting up more, fighting more, the parents are more short-tempered. Quoting Anson, quote, When it came to the children, Kathy fell into the same mood. She was tense from her strained relationship with George and from the efforts of trying to put her house in shape before Christmas. On their fourth night in the house, she exploded and together with her husband beat Danny, Chris and Missy with a strap and a large, heavy wooden spoon. End quote. Kathy is the first to experience something paranormal in the house the next morning on 22nd of December. She's sitting in the kitchen trying to make lists for Christmas, which is quickly approaching and feeling guilty about the way she and George had beaten the kids last night, when suddenly she feels the presence of another person coming up from behind her and giving her an embrace. And the feeling of a reassuring hand on hers is actually a nice feeling.
0: Yeah, that that bit gives me chills because I've experienced something like that myself. And it's such a strange but nice feeling.
1: Yeah, but at least in your case, it was a good entity. Absolutely. Her moment of quiet reflection, however, isn't going to last long. The kids are calling down to her from the third floor hallway to come quick. So she gets to the third floor and finds all three kids staring into the toilet, which is never good because it means they just dropped something and tried to flush it down. Right. But this is actually worse. This is really bad. Inside the toilet, she sees that the porcelain, which she herself had scrubbed, is now black. And she can't understand what she's seeing, so she flushes, but it isn't the water. And she asks the kids if they've done something, which they deny. She tries to rub it clean with tissue, but it doesn't work. And she sends one of the boys to her bathroom to get a scrub brush and a bottle of bleach. But moments later, she's being called to come downstairs. So she walks into her own bedroom and is hit with a strong smell of perfume, which is not her fragrance. But as she approaches the bathroom, she's hit with another smell, a horrible stench, like a decomposing red. And she runs downstairs to get George. So George, who has not gone to work,
0: showered or shaved in days, is losing weight and spending all of his time huddled by the fire trying to get warm. He's annoyed at Kathy for disturbing him, but he heads upstairs where he also finds that the family bathroom toilet porcelain is also black so all three of the upstairs toilets have now turned black and the smell coming from the ensuite bath is horrific he starts to open windows to get the stench of cologne and cadaverine out of his home when Kathy cries out from the sewing room George walks in to find hundreds and hundreds of buzzing flies clinging to just one window so much buzzing George can't figure out anyway how these flies could even be alive in below freezing temperatures. There's just no logical explanation for it. He gets Kathy and the kids out and comes back with some newspapers to kill the flies. There are just so many flies.
1: Early the next morning, Kathy wakes up to odd noises, and it's cold. She goes downstairs to see George wrestling with the front door, which is hanging off its hinges. And this is also from the Anson book, quote, What happened? I don't know, George answered, finally forcing the door closed. This thing was wide open, hanging on one hinge. Here, look at this. He pointed to the brass lock plate. The doorknob was twisted completely off-center. The metal facing was bent back as though someone had tried to pry it open with a tool, but from the inside. Someone was trying to get out of the house, not in. I don't understand what's going on around here, George muttered, more to himself than Kathy. I know I locked this before I went upstairs. To open the door from here, all you had to do was turn the lock. Is it the same way outside, Kathy asked? No, there's nothing wrong with the knob or the outside plate. Somebody needed an awful lot of strength to pull away a door this heavy and tear it off one of the hinges. Maybe it was the wind George. Kathy offered, hopefully. It seems to get pretty strong out here, you know. There's no wind in here, much less a tornado. Somebody... Something had to do this. The Lutzers looked at one another. Kathy was the first to react. The kids. She turned and ran upstairs to the second floor and into Missy's bedroom. Missy is fine, sound asleep, along with her brothers, all on their stomachs. Come to think of it, the whole family had begun to sleep on their stomachs, and they never had before. Meanwhile, strange smells continued to appear, and a crucifix hung on the wall—a nice silver crucifix was suddenly hanging upside down. Also, there were more instances of Cathy or George losing patience with the children and slapping them. Uh, meanwhile, Father Mancuso is not doing so well since his first visit to the house. He's been suffering from a flu and he starts to get blisters on his hands, but he still manages to call George on Christmas Eve to ask him what room they were sleeping in. When the room with all the flies in it was described as Cathy's sewing room, the priest was rather relieved he told George that none of them should set foot in that room. Then the line became staticky and they lost connection. This was the first but not the last time George and the priest would struggle to communicate with the phones not ringing or constant static. George had also now burned a quart of wood and 100 gallons of oil in the week, which I had to calculate that that's 3.6 cubic meter of wood and 378 liters of oil, which is a lot.
0: For a week. A lot. We order... I mean, we have a fire... Now, we don't heat our house with wood, but we, we heat our living... We heat our, like, den where we sit with wood, and we can heat, keep the rest of the house at a really cool temperature and just have a fire going in that fireplace. And we usually order two cords of wood, and that will last us an entire winter.
1: Same. I was just calculating, and two cords of wood would be what we used last winter. Yeah. So,
0: to burn a cord of wood in a week is shocking.
1: Of course, they checked if there's something wrong with the oil oil furnace, right? But it was fine. Nothing was going on there. And usually George was the only one feeling cold. But later, on Christmas Eve, everyone, even Kathy's family visiting, felt a draft. And George then found a window in the sewing room had opened, on its own, and the room was full of flies again. That night, Kathy had her first nightmare of the murders, and she was screaming in her sleep. And after calming her, George was once again wide awake at 3.15 a.m., going to check out the boathouse. And he's walking back to the house, and he looks up at the house, and in Missy's bedroom window, he can see the child standing in the window watching him. And behind her, he could see the face of a pig with glowing red eyes. Terrified, he races to the house and up the stairs and finds her sound asleep on her stomach. And finds her sound asleep on her stomach. Relieved, he takes a deep breath and hears a creaking sound behind him. Turning, he sees the little girl's rocking chair rocking, with no one in it. The kids are told to stay out of the sewing room. The boys think it's because they might have more presents hidden in there, but Missy tells her older brothers that they have to stay out because that's where Jody is, and she tells them Jody is a pig. And obviously they ignore her because she's their little sister. She's five and they ignore missy's take on things because she's five <laughs> soon after kathy finds missy talking to jody who she assumes is the child imaginary friend in the shape of a peak
0: <laughs> well. yeah so moving on everyone's behavior continues to change The boys are fighting more, and there are more mentions of the boys being slapped hard and hit by the parents. More rooms are freezing, and cold spots appear around the house. Windows open and close, doors open and close. A large sum of money goes missing, and then they find the red room. From Anson, quote: "The basement of the Lutz's house was 43 by 28 feet. When George first looked it over, he came down the stairs." and saw off to the right doors that led to the oil-burner, hot-water heater, and the freezer, washers, and dryers left from the DeFeo estate. To his left, through another set of doors, was a playroom, 11 by 28 feet, beautifully finished in walnut paneling, with recessed fluorescent lights in a dropped ceiling. Directly in front of him was the area he planned to use as his office. A small closet opened into the space beneath the stairs, and between the staircase and the right-hand wall, Plywood panels formed an additional closet, extending out about seven feet, with shelving that ran from the ceiling to the floor. This walk-in area, George thought, made good use of what would otherwise be wasted space, and its proximity to the kitchen stairs made it a most convenient pantry. Kathy was working in these closets. When she stacked some large, heavy canned goods against the closet wall, one of the shelves cracked. One side of the plywood paneling on the rear wall seemed to give a little. She moved the cans aside and pushed against the panel. It moved farther away from the shelving. The closet was lit by a single bulb hanging from the ceiling. The bulb's reflection shone through a small slit opening just enough to give Kathy the impression that there was an empty space behind the closet, under the tallest section of the stairs. There isn't supposed to be anything back there, he said to Kathy. George removed the four wooden shelves, then shoved hard against the plywood. It swung all the way open. It was a secret door. The room was small, about four by five feet. Kathy gasped. From the ceiling to the floor, it was painted solid red. What is it, George? I don't know, he answered, feeling the three solid concrete block walls. It seems to be an extra room. Maybe a bomb shelter. Everyone was building them back in the late 50s, but it sure doesn't show up in the house plans the broker gave us. Do you think the DeFeos built it? Kathy asked, holding nervously onto George's arm. I don't know that either. I guess so, he said, steering Kathy out of the secret room. I wonder what it was used for. He pulled the panel closed. Do you think there are any more rooms like that behind the closets, Kathy asked. I don't know, Kathy, George answered. I'll have to check out each wall. Did you notice the funny smell in there? Yeah, I smelled it, George said. That's how blood smells. End quote. So she's frightened, and Kathy tells him she's worried about the house. He says she shouldn't be afraid. And then, while he's closing the hidden door again, he suddenly has a vision of a bearded Ronnie DeFeo staring back at him before the door closes. Meanwhile, Father Mancuso is increasingly convinced that there are demonic forces at play in the Lutz home. People are getting nauseous in church. Anytime people go near the priest, they get nauseous. If anyone hints that the Lutzes should leave, or there could be demons involved, they're throwing up. The telephones don't work. It's a whole thing. Father Mancuso...
1: Some very powerful demons. It's... Yeah,
0: they are really fucking with Father Mancuso. Back at the house, there are more terrible smells, flies. And then there's this large ceramic lion that cost a small fortune. I think I read that it was like $2,400 that Kathy had bought for George for Christmas. I don't know if it was the same Christmas that Christmas where she didn't have enough presents for the kids. Who can say? But maybe it comes to life and bites people. This lion, this large ceramic lion, it it moves around the house at will. And then George decides to go to the library to read all about the murders. He's finally like, you know what? Maybe this does have something to do with all the murders murders that happened here. Uh, And I think that's where he learned that the family were killed at 3.15am, which is the time he was waking up every morning. Terrifying. He had also gotten some info from the local historical society. Shout out to local historical societies everywhere. You're the best. From the book, quote, The next day, the Amityville Historical Society had some interesting information for George, particularly about the very location of his house. It seemed the Shinnecock Indians used land on the Amityville River as an enclosure for the sick, mad, and dying. These unfortunates were penned up until they died of exposure. However, the record noted that the Shinnecocks did not use this tract as a consecrated burial mound because they believed it was infested with demons. For how many uncounted centuries the Shinnecock carried on in this manner, no one really knows. But in the late 1600s, white settlers eased the first Americans out of the area, sending them farther out on Long Island. To this day, Shinnecocks still own land, property, and businesses on the eastern tip of the island. One of the more notorious settlers who came to the newly named Amityville in those days was a John Ketchum, or Ketchum, who had been forced out of Salem, Massachusetts, for practicing witchcraft. John set up residence within 500 feet of where George now lived, continuing his alleged devil worship. The account also claimed he was buried somewhere on the northeast corner of the property. From the real estate tax assessment office in town, George learned that the house at 112 Ocean Avenue had been built In 1928, by a Mr. Monaghan, and it passed through several families until 1965 when the DeFeo's purchased it. We're going to circle back to all of that next week. On New Year's Eve, Kathy and George are staring into the fire when they see the image of a demon with half of its face missing as though it were shot in the face. In the early morning hours, they're once again awakened by the windows in the house opening. Freezing wind coming in and the blankets are ripped off of them as if there's a tornado in their bedroom. They see terrifying red pig eyes glowing in the windows and they find huge cloven hoof prints in the snow. Meanwhile, Father Mancuso is still really not doing well. He still has the flu. I think he has three bouts of the flu within these 28 days. I'm going to go ahead and suggest it's just the one flu that he couldn't get over, but who can say? So he's sick as a dog. He's now also got blisters on his hands, and they're starting to turn into more like a stigmata impression. Stigmata is a, it's considered, I would say it's considered a miracle, right, in the church when somebody, somebody manifests the wounds that Jesus had when he was on the cross. So they'll develop sores in their hands and feet where he was nailed to the cross or cut on their side where he was this sort of thing. And so his hands are starting to look more like a stigmata situation. And he agrees to do a second remote blessing. He's not going to go anywhere near the house and he's been ordered to kind of stay away from it. And so he does this remote blessing from his church. And when he gets back to his apartments, they smell like feces. His mood is also changing and he is Everyone is getting obsessed in this situation. Like, George is obsessed with fire. The priest is obsessed with this possible demonic activity at the Lutz house. He really wants an exorcism, but he is ordered by higher ups to stand down and not return to the house.
1: The, uh, meanwhile, the activity at the house is ramping up. George walks into the bedroom one night to find Kathy sound asleep, which is nice. Mm. But the problem is she's also levitating two feet above the bed and her body is slowly floating towards the once again open windows. Yep,
0: yeah, George hears this incredible cacophony of a full-on marching band in his house on a regular basis. No one can hear it but him.
1: And on a particularly freezing night, they let the dog in and he's clearly uneasy in Mrs. room. She introduces him to her friend Jody, and he hides under the bed until he can sprint up to the boys' room. Poor dog. Just doesn't want to be in there. No, he
0: does not like Missy's room. One night, after she was levitating again, Kathy suddenly ages before George's eyes until she is this revolting, white-haired, toothless, drooling old lady. His impressions. <laughs> He's like, she looks good for age. (laughs) He's like, oh, no. (laughs) And the changes recede. But Kathy is left with what they describe as like deep marks on her face that would slowly fade in time. I think like deep marks left over from the wrinkles that had ravaged her Mm. previously attractive face. So George starts to reach out to some psychics for help. A buddy with a psychic girlfriend comes over and she tells them that there are people in the house who used to live here, but they didn't die here. She also implies that the room in the basement, the Red Room, has bodies buried beneath it, and also suggests that maybe a well on the property could be a porthole to hell. Like, who can say?
1: Kathy's brother and his wife come back from their honeymoon and come to stay for a night. They are staying in Missy's room. Her sister-in-law wakes up screaming. There was a little boy sitting at the end of her bed, she said asking for Missy and Jodie before he vanished. And this prompts George and Kathy to do their own cleansing, and they are armed with a crucifix and a Bible. The problem is, they don't know what they're doing, and they're making everything so much worse. They're just making the demons angry. Now the demons are just mad. Meanwhile, the priest is trying to convince George to leave the house, and uh, he's also trying to convince the church that they need an exorcism. As we said before, they have a lot of communication issues with the phones. It's not working properly. They're static. So they're barely able to to have a conversation about the things. It's like somebody's trying to prevent these kind of conversations. That's right.
0: Absolutely. But they are actually on the phone when George can hear Kathy scream upstairs and Father Mancuso can hear it on the other end of the line, which is, you know, that's never good. This is from Jay Anson, quote, When he reached the landing, he saw Kathy in the hallway shrieking at Danny, Chris, and Missy. George could see why. On every wall in the hall were green, gelatinous spots oozing down from the ceiling to the floor, settling into shimmering pools of green slime. Which of you did this, Kathy fumed. Tell me or I'll break every bone in your bodies." We didn't do it, Mama. All three children chorused at once, dodging the slaps that she was aiming at their heads. We didn't do it, Danny yelled. We saw it when we came upstairs. End quote.
1: So now Kathy wants to leave the house, but George flies into a rage at the thought and continues his rage cleansing. His rage cleansing. <laughs> this is what he does. Yeah, he rage. Clean. Some people rage clean.
0: George rage cleanses.
1: One night they wake up to find the windows open. Once more, And the children, borderline hypothermic, one of the first, but not the last time, that all end up in the same bed trying to protect the children.
0: On the 10th of January, Kathy is afflicted with horrific welts all over her torso that go from, like, her pubic bone up to her breasts, below her breasts. And these marks are hot, and they're hot to the touch, so that if anyone touches them, they feel uncomfortable to her But more importantly, if anyone else touches them, they're burned. And her mother witnesses this as well.
1: Also, Danny's hand is slammed and trapped in a window, completely flattening the hand. Miraculously, nothing is broken. And then there's another incident of all the windows opening in a terrible storm and causing water and mud damage in the house. George hears from the psychics that dogs actually can be sensitive, so he drags poor Harry around the house, and Harry doesn't like the secret red room in the basement. He's terrified of Missy's room and also terrified of the sewing room upstairs. And finally, he's allowed to go sleep upstairs with the boys.
0: Jody, the pig demon, is a bigger and bigger problem for everyone but Missy. So this is from the book, Daddy, Missy broke in. Come to my room. Jody says he wants to talk to you. The urgency of his daughter's voice broke the spell. George snapped out of it and jumped up, almost bowling Kathy over. Jody? Who's Jody? That's her friend, answered Kathy. You know, I told you, she makes up imaginary people. You can't see Jody. Oh, yes, Mama, Missy protested. I see him all the time. He's the biggest pig you ever saw. George and Kathy looked at each other. A pig, he said. It struck them both at the same time. The pig's in her room. George ran after Missy. You stay here, he yelled at Kathy and the boys. Missy was just climbing on the bed when George stopped outside her bedroom door. He didn't see Jody or anything like a pig. Where's this Jody, he asked Missy. He'll be right back, the little girl said, settling covers around herself. He had to go outside for a minute. George let out his breath. There he is, Daddy. She was pointing to one of her windows. His eyes followed her finger and he stared. Staring at him through one of the panes, were two fiery red eyes. No face, just the mean little eyes of a pig. That's Jody, cried Missy. He wants to come in. Something rushed past George on his left. It was Kathy, screaming in an unearthly voice. In the same move it took her to reach the window, she picked up one of Missy's little play chairs and swung it at the pair of eyes. Her blow shattered the window and shards of glass flew back on top of her. There was an animal cry of pain, a loud squealing, and the eyes were gone, George rushed to what was left of the second story window and looked out. He saw nothing below, but he heard the squealing. It sounded as if it was headed for the boathouse. Only Chris saw his little sister get out of bed, go to the smashed window, and wave End quote. So soon after, when everyone's feeling a little calmer, she talks to her daughter, Kathy talks to her daughter about Jody asking if they play like did you play games like tell me, tell me more about your friend Jody. Missy says, quote, oh, no, Missy shook her head. He tells me about the little boy who used to live in my room. She looked around to see if anyone was listening. He died, Mama, she whispered. The little boy got sick and he died. I see, Kathy said. What else did he tell you? The little girl thought for a moment. Last night, he said I was going to live here forever so I could play with the little boy. End quote. Not good. All right. So finally, after more nightmares, mood swings, doors and windows opening and closing, marching bands, people levitating, green slime comes out of walls and keyholes, and they've had enough, and they're like, it's time to just go to Kathy's mom's. Only the house wouldn't let them leave. The car wouldn't start. An incredible storm whipped up. George lay paralyzed in bed, listening to the sounds of the boys' beds smashing around upstairs. Finally able to move, the boys rushed down away from a terrifying figure cloaked in white the same figure they'd seen in the fireplace before. It was seven o'clock in the morning on January 14th, 1976, the 28th day the Lutzes had lived at 112 Ocean Avenue, when they got into the car and went to Kathy's mother. Danny would say later he had no idea that when they left, they would never return. Finally safe at her mother's, Kathy, George, and the children fell into an exhausted sleep until Kathy woke up, realizing that both she and George were once again levitating. Fleeing the room, they saw blackish-green slime oozing up the stairs toward them. Whatever they had fled had followed them.
1: Ah, yeah. so what had happened to the Lutz family? Was this a real haunting? You'll have to wait for next week, because... That's when we'll go back to rehash all of this and also the rumors about the DeFeo murders. Trust us, there's so much more to talk about and to debunk and to break down. So
0: much. I'm really hoping... Well, we'll see. It's going to be what it's going to be. But I'm like, is this our first four-parter? It's not out of the realm of possibility. There's so much to talk about. All right. Something good. My something good is I'm about to go to the airport to pick my niece up, or my niece is on her way here from the airport, so... I'm incredibly excited and looking forward to spending time with my best friend and her daughter.:
1: My something good that I, that I'm also about to pick up somebody from the airport. That's right tomorrow morning a friend from America is coming to visit. not any another one, but that's also something good.: I know I'm
0: so I feel really bad because she's a mutual friend and she's now been to see you twice, and I have been to see you zero times. Part of the problem is I have half a dozen people who want to come with me. <laughs> There's just going to be like 15 of us, Johanna. We're going to rent that entire hotel near you. It's going to be great.
1: (laughs) All right. What else do we need to tell you? If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please do us the huge, 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 huge favor. Do it for us for our 200th birthday. (laughs) (laughs) I know we (laughs) keep wanting to say like, we're 200. Go to your favorite podcast app and see if you can leave us a rating and or review. That would be so good. Absolutely. Don't forget to go
0: to podcastawards.com and vote for us. And our website is freshhellpodcast.com. If you go there, you'll find places you can listen to us, links to our merch, Patreon, everything you would ever need to know.
1: Exactly. Also, come join us on 27th of July to talk to us about the Amityville Horror on Patreon. It's not like we're going to give extra information there. No. Don't worry about that. We're just going to talk it's just about like a f- T- a chat with our murder tier listeners exactly yeah. exactly looking forward to that and i think that's it yeah please tell all your pets your dogs your cats your pigs with red glowing eyes tell them we said hi hug them cuddle them uh please don't let your dogs outside without a dog house no
0: Always make sure that you're, if you're going to tie a, an, an animal out outside, always make sure that there's no possibility of strangulation, please. We have an outdoor t- outside tie for at the cottage, our little cottage for the dog. But, it, you know, even as little kids, little, little kids, you know, we knew that we could never put patches outside unless we were there. Because yeah. she could potentially, exactly. she was a beagle and she liked to walk around the top edges of the deck like a cat. So my dad was always terrified she'd fall just the, you know what I mean, just the wrong way and catch a leash. So just be careful. And, you know, if you have outdoor dogs, take take better care of them than these people.
1: Be kind to all the animals out there. Give out water. It's It's hot. Be kind to your fellow human beings. And most importantly, be kind to yourself. Because it's important, but it's also very hard. I know. It's so hard. It's the worst. And if you're going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye.